0: Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. It is, as I say, our 42nd episode and the first episode of the 2019 season. We're recording on Tuesday, January 1st, 2019, with a whole bunch of tennis already underway this week and feels like the season's in full swing. It's like we didn't have an off-season at all. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. As listeners may know, Carl is the host of the 30 Love podcast as well, and I believe you just released a new episode with Rowan Ricardo Phillips, is that right?
1: Yeah, he and I were talking about the 2017 season, and that's what he wrote a book about, but we're a little more on target with the tennis schedule on this show, so I'm looking forward to talking about the season that's underway. Yeah, these... These uh, old-fashioned publication schedules are not good for
0: keeping us up to date with the most recent tennis season. Um, but yeah, when you're done listening to this, definitely go check out Carl's podcast as well. So, like I said, we've already got, I think, five tournaments underway, plus the Hotman Cup. I want to talk about Hotman Cup a little bit, but I'll save that for, for later on. Just as we're recording this, I see that Federer Bencic just finished their match against Serena Williams and Francis TFO. Um, but I'll get to that in a little bit. I wanted to start with a with a general question for you, Carl. I mean, we we've been talking about the same slate of of big names for you know, as long as we've been doing this podcast. Usually, tennis conversations center around the same the same main figures, obviously Federer and Nadal, Djokovic, and Serena, and a few other other top women. And I'm wondering, outside of that core of a few players, now that we've got a little bit of a, a blank slate to draw on for 2019. Who are the players you're looking forward to watching this year? Who are the players you think might take a big step forward this year? I mean, what, what, for at this, from this extremely uneducated early standpoint, what are you looking at for 2019?
1: For the women, I think we have such a strong bunch of young players who could break through that I'm going to try to really focus on them more this season. And there there are a number who either... Well, there are two under 22 who have won a Grand Slam title in Osaka and Ostapenko. I think Ostapenko, some people are writing off a bit because she slumped since winning the French Open, but she's still very young and still in the top 30. So I, I think she could be a factor again. And then Osaka had that big win at the U.S. Open over Serena Williams and broke through before any people, including me, were expecting her to. And then Sabalenka, who we've talked about a lot on the show, is 20 and close to the top 10 and based on her results, maybe a bit better than her already very good ranking. So those are three women who already many people have seen many times, but I'm excited to watch because they're still in at an age where they could be improving very quickly um, or it, where it's more likely they, they would be. And then, you know, in the younger ages, Potopova and Isimova, uh, not yet 18 and in the top 100. So we'll we'll be getting into a lot of tournaments where it won't be difficult to see them and we'll where they will be playing some really good opponents. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the some of the young women on tour. What about you? Yeah, I'm glad you
0: mentioned Sabalenka. I was surprised that you mentioned Ostapenko. Um, I mean, one match is a small sample, but she launched her 2019 campaign with a six love six two loss against Monica Nicolescu. Uh, so not a not a really encouraging start from her, but. I'm I'm glad you mentioned Sabalenka. Like you say I know we've talked about her a lot on this show, but I my enthusiasm for Sabalenka is it, it is almost literally unbounded. Like I could I could see her winning the Grand Slam this year. I know that's outrageous and I'm not predicting that, but when you see her playing well and I think she's she's gotten better at controlling her game and giving herself a decent chance to play well every time out. It's it's tough to uh, to figure how people are going to beat her. Uh, I'm sure now that I've said that, we're going to watch a lot of people beat her in various embarrassing ways. But when we've, I think we had an episode a few months ago talking about who might be our, our Australian Open champion on the women's side. And my numbers are saying Sabalenka is the, the top or one of the top two people in, in, in ELO rating. And I have a tough time picking anybody above her to win the Australian. And... Beyond that, it's it's. I mean, the the sky's the limit. Like you say, she's so young. Uh, I guess you can make a lot of the same arguments about Osaka, but when I watch these players, the one that just makes me think this is an all time great we're watching uh, come on the scene. It's Sabalenka. I mean, Osaka could be great as well, but Sabalenka is the one that just wows me. Um, outside of the the big four, who are you?
1: Looking at watching this year on the men's side, so the men are, are definitely not as blessed in in terms of young players to at least get me very excited. Uh, par- partly because some of the best of the young men have already broken through, and in the case of Alex Diminar, I feel like I watched enough of him in a year for for a lifetime. So I'll I'll try to watch some of his younger peers too. But I, I was really excited to see Kachanov. Have such a good Paris Masters and almost reached the top 10. I, I've liked his game for a long time and look forward to watching more deep runs from him. And uh, we've talked about Medvedev, whose who's game I find more funky, but who's nearly ranked as high and had a few really good tournaments toward the end of, of last year. Um, so I think both of them could be in the top 10. In a few months, let alone at the end of the year, and it would be it would be fun to see either of them go deep at a at a major. I'm also interested in seeing Andy Murray and Stan Bavrinka and, and how their comebacks hold up. It would be nice to see them competing again at big tournaments. Uh, I'm a little skeptical about Murray, but I I do want want to see him back near the top, even if I don't think it'll happen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and in fairness, I think Murray is skeptical about Murray as well. Uh, he hasn't seemed super excited about his his health, even though he did win his opening match against James Duckworth. I think that was in Brisbane. Uh, yeah, Kachanov is kind of the the ATP equivalent of Sabalenka. Where if you if you see them play on a good day, it's tough to imagine how they would ever lose. I mean Kachanov is just such an electric player. Uh, on the other hand we've talked about this in previous episodes as well that he's he's a little bit old for where he's at at his his whole developmental path i mean he 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 spent a lot of time not converting that electric game style into wins um obviously still young enough on in the scale of men's tennis these days to go on to have a, a solid career and like like you say could go deep at a slam um but you wonder there's so many people who've won the Paris masters over the years. And that ends up being their, their sole career highlight. I'm wondering what you think, Carl, about, about another young player you didn't mention, which is born a And he's someone who, who people have been tabbing as a future great for, for a long time. And he's had some injuries that he's overcome, but do you put him in the same category as
1: Kachinov and Medvedev and so on? Yeah. And younger than both of them. And Perhaps more impressive where he ended up in the rankings and some of the results he had because he had he had fallen quite a ways with injury, so had had tougher draws and needed to have some big wins to, to get those ranking points. I was really impressed with him in, in twenty eighteen because he had he had all the tools to be about number fifty number forty, but not enough power and aggression with the serve and forehand to to get much higher than that. And he really improved in those areas and and became just a a really uh, solid attacking player as well as defensive player. So I'm, yeah, I, I like his chances as much as either of the other two. I think I've just seen so much of him over the years that he was more in that category for me of like Zverev. I mean, Zverev could be number one at the end of the year and I wouldn't be surprised, but because I've already seen so much of him, I, I, um, was less, I guess, less excited about watching him this year.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, one of the frustrating things about this, these last couple of of generations of players who haven't broken through is that there's so much hype, and we've been kind of inured to the hype that you know we all got so excited about Delpo and then Dimitrov and and the, the succeeding next gen one after another that. Now that we have another next-gen, it's like we're all being a little bit careful because we we don't know how excited to be. And Zverev is the one where I think a lot of people are willing to say, like, okay, this guy is this guy is the real deal, but he still hasn't broken through at a slam. Uh, if we have a first-time slam winner in 2019 on the men's side, do you think Zverev is that guy? He's the most likely, yeah. Who else would you pick as a someone who might win their first slam this year?
1: I, I mean, I'm just looking at the rankings, so it's kind of a dumb, smart way to do it. But it, just because team seems like a good bet to make the French Open final every year, that, that gives him a shot. I, I, not a great shot if Rafa is, is healthy but that, that makes him at least a contender to, if he gets in that match. And then a guy who's made a couple of finals recently, Kevin Anderson. Uh, I, it, it's kind of hard to imagine, and he didn't do well in either final, but just by giving himself those chances, he's got a better chance than guys who, who haven't gone deep. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Nishikori had a really good year. He was he was starting from a pretty low ranking, so he had to work pretty hard to end up in the top 10. He's still going to feel like an underdog against most of the guys ranked above him in a best-of-five match. But, yeah, I could definitely see Nishikori winning in Australia or the U.S. Open. It wouldn't shock me.
0: Yeah, it it, it wouldn't shock me either. Um, it is difficult to imagine other players breaking through, like some of the other people we've talked about, like, I'm willing to say Kajanov or Chorich could win a slam someday, but it's kind of difficult to imagine them winning a slam in 2019. But I guess that's that's always the case when there's a changing of the guard. It's tough to to say it's happening right now. When I mean, when it so easily could not. Um, who would you say if if you had to pick one player, obviously now including the big four, who do you think the player is who's most likely to win multiple slams this year? What's your boring answer? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's boring, but that probably means it's right to the extent a prediction like this can be right. So I I forgive you for that. Um, If you said Fanini, then our our listeners would just be imploding at home. So Djokovic, it is. Um, what about you? I would, yeah, I would definitely have to say Djokovic as well. I'm curious who the who the number two pick for that that category would be at
1: this point. I mean, is it
0: Federer to win two slams?
1: No, for me, and I'm being so boring and rankings-based, but the rankings make sense to me right now. Uh, For me, it's Nadal, because he won the French and went deep at the other three last year. I mean, he could have finished number one and had two or three slams last year. He had health problems, and that's always a little scary, but... We've seen him so many times be out for a couple of months and come back really strong.
0: Yeah, I feel like we've been having, not on this podcast, this podcast is only two years old, but we've been having the same conversation for 10 years that we don't want to make super optimistic predictions about it at all because of his health, but then he goes and wins more slams. And then the next year, like, well, we're not sure about Rafa's health. And then he goes and wins more slams and, you know, repeat until we get here and he's still. Number two in the world, coming off a, another great season, so so yeah, that that makes sense to me. It's it's increasingly difficult to see Roger pulling that off. It's just maybe just from from fami- familiarity. Um, he's the guy you can see in the winner's circle over over a player who would have to break through the the Big Four dominance. Uh, on the women's side, th- there's been a lot of talk about the fact we've had eight different slam winners over the last two years and i wrote an article um towards the end of last season that that just pointed out that we could easily have another year like that someone like Sabalenka is just one example of the players who could win their first slam and keep that streak going for longer but in the opposite direction um who do you think is, would be the most likely to, to do the same thing on the women's side, win more than one slam and, and maybe put this
1: era of depth over dominance behind us? <laughs> well, I feel like it would just be returned to another era, but I, I make a slight favorite for that category, Serena Williams, just because she made the last two finals and has shown the most dominance in her career of the current field. Are you concerned at
0: all that she she could not lead her mixed doubles team to victory over Roger Federer and
1: Belinda Bencic? I don't expect her to win multiple mixed doubles titles this year. Maybe just one. But in singles, no. I mean, I I haven't been particularly impressed by Serena Williams in doubles for a few years. Uh, even when she and Venus had good results in the last few years and they haven't particularly, It's it's Venus who's the better doubles player. But... In singles yeah i'm i'm still I'm still really considering this uh the Serena era until proven otherwise i mean just making the two finals in a row she was disappointing in those finals but that was a pretty impressive result anyway in her comeback year
0: yeah it, it really is and the fact that she played such a limited schedule makes it tough to know what to expect for her in in this season as well i'm sure she's going to to do the same and schedule very judiciously and, and be very careful with her health and so on. But since she's already in action, it's safe to assume she'll be in Australia. It seems pretty safe to assume that she'll, she's at least targeting playing all four slams this year. Given, given this immense variability, what do you, what's your median projection for her ranking at the end of the year? seven. Wow. I wish I'd, w- we'd written this down in sealed envelopes or something. Cause I was going to say seven as well. Um, <laughs> and since I'm such a contrarian, you know, I'm not lying. If I, if, if I were just yeah, yeah, making yeah. something up after your answer, then I definitely wouldn't No, have said normally seven. when you but say, that,
1: wow, it's because the right answer was, you know, 24 negative three or something. So I, uh, I, I believe you. Yeah, the right answer is definitely not negative. We can agree on
0: that in this case. Uh, although maybe that's how we quantify the new ITF rankings, make them.
1: Negative. I was going to say the ranking know, systems joking. changes all the time. You know, we gotta we gotta leave room for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that you'd
0: maybe that would leave room for like, great players to come back. Like if someone like Justine Hanna retired at the at the top, and then you just nudge her up to negative two. For a while, until she decided to come back. I guess the same thing would apply to Serena. I don't know how that worked. This is this is the, some math that I'm not that comfortable with. But <laughs> so Serena's number seven. So so are you imagining a season where she wins a wins a slam, misses a lot of other time, has some kind of embarrassing early round losses, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I mean number seven now has. 4630 points. So one slam is 2,000. She could actually have pretty good results, but just not win any other slams and maybe win one premier title and just play a really limited schedule and end up with that number of points. So I don't even think she needs to be embarrassed. She just might really be judicious, as you say, and maybe play a single digit number of tournaments. Yeah, and maybe maybe embarrassing isn't the word I was looking for.
0: I don't I don't mean, I don't mean that it's to be as negative as I'm, I I it may have sounded, just in the sense that it, Serena has had her share of big surprise losses over the years. Uh, not as many as other people, but since she's she's Serena, they are bigger surprises. So like, I'm thinking of Madison Bregel when when she was, I guess she was already pregnant by then before winning the 2017 Australian Open. Uh, I guess there's a good explanation for that one, but it's still Madison Brangle on the other other side of the net. So a few of those would would keep her count down. Maybe in tournaments where she shows up but she's not feeling that great or she has nagging injuries or whatever. But yeah, so who's your if, if Serena's your number 7, who's who's your top pick for number 1 in the WTA at the end of this year?
1: Uh, <laughs> there's only one think, right answer for this, Carl. Yeah, I mean, it's mark. obviously Sabalenka. It's obviously Sabalenka. Um I think it's. I'm gonna say Osaka. Really? Sure. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel so, it's so tight near the top in the rankings that there are a lot like Svitolina is also a good pick, I think. But I, I think probably no one has at this stage a greater than 15% chance of being number one. So I'm comfortable with lots of picks as being unlikely but not out of this world
0: well you should keep in mind i was browsing through some headlines before we started recording this episode and spitalina has been quoted as saying she would like to be number one at the end of this year i don't know if that changes
1: your answer at all to know that a player it does i really yeah i thought she was gunning for number three but now that i know she's she's interested in being number one it would be okay with it i think that does change things
0: okay yeah, lots of lots of good stuff coming out of press conferences in the first few days of the season. Um, everyone gets to be optimistic. The the generalities and the platitudes are even more general and more platitudinous than usual. Um, in on a similar but hopefully more quantifiable note, I'm wondering what you think, Carl, about how we should be treating the results that are coming in right now. Like I mentioned earlier, that Yelena Ostapenko got crushed by Monica Nicolescu, um I don't think we've seen a ton of surprise upsets so far. Partly because we're only like two and a half days into the season, but Venus Williams beat Victoria Azarenka in the first round in Auckland. Uh, we had a big match between Elise Mertens and Kiki Bertens in in Brisbane. So we, we've got some results in, and I mean, how, how much leeway do you think we should be giving top players for for losses in this first week or maybe the second week? I mean, do you think? I don't know. I don't know if I'm asking you to put a number on this, but but do you discount these results because players are probably a little rusty from two months without any without any match play?
1: I generally do discount them. I also think there are lots of recent cases of players who went into majors and not just in Australia without much to show for their warm up tournaments and still have deep runs. My, my one caveat is when you see a scoreline like Ostapenko's, it's fair to wonder if she's carrying some kind of injury that she was hoping wasn't too severe to keep her from playing, and she's finding out that she, she does need some time off. So th- there is always that possibility that we're, when we're seeing someone for the first time in a couple of months, something has happened to them or something happened to them a while ago that they still haven't fully recovered from, even with a month or two off from tennis. And that would be the main thing I'd be watching for.
0: I'm curious what you think also about the, the status of the WTA Brisbane tournament. I, I never really thought about this in previous years because I, I never really bothered to get my head around the various tiers of premier tournaments in the WTA schedule. So we, there are three different levels of premieres, which are kind of like important and more important and then super important. And this is only the lowest level of important, but Brisbane is a premier tournament, so players have their off-season, which for for women is a little bit longer than the men get, and some of them choose to come back straight into a tournament with a lot on the line. I mean, it's it's not as many points as the premier mandatories, like um, Indian Wells and Miami, I believe. I apologize if I get that wrong, because I can never keep track of which ones are which, but... But still, there's a lot of points on the line. I mean, it's, it's a reasonably big tournament. Uh, I, I I don't have a great question about this, but I, do you think that makes sense to to have the
1: stakes be so high right out of the gate like this? Yeah, definitely. I, if if I'm running a sport that wants to grab people's attention and be relevant from the start. I don't start with a level like the 250s that the men are playing, uh, but but with something bigger. I mean, you say a lot is at stake, but it's all good stuff. I mean, players have a chance to get more prize money than they would at a lower level and to get more points. I mean, I guess because of the 52-week ranking system, it's bad for the players who did well there last year, but they have a chance to do well again. I, no, I think it... it if anything, I'd rather see the the schedule start with something even bigger. Um, I mean, as it is, people generally don't start paying attention until the Australian Open, but it doesn't have to be that way. And if there is like a big event with all the, the top players or most of the top players playing that event uh, as as something leading up to it, which we do see in the clay season and we do see leading up to the U.S. Open, I think that that builds more of a of a longer uh, mini season within a season than we typically get around australia yeah that's a good point i guess as an insider
0: is the wrong word but as a very engaged tennis fan I, i've sort of bought into the whole idea of warm-up tournaments and the necessity of them but uh, warm-up tournaments don't have to be just warm-ups and so that's a that's a good point i didn't expect you to come at it from that angle um if you if you're thinking of of something coming out of the off season and really grabbing people's attention, would you be thinking of something like a multi week international Davis Cup style competition <laughs> held across <laughs> multiple cities around Australia leading up to a climactic weekend of some of the top names in men's tennis just the week before the Australian Open, something like that?
1: Tell me more about this intriguing proposal. <laughs>
0: Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm I'm outlining the ATP Cup, which is the ATP's answer to the new Davis Cup, and the the proposal which seems to be going forward is starting next year. There would be I, I, I think it's ten days, so it wipes out the this this two weeks before the Australian Open of two fifties and five hundreds. Um are there five hundreds now? I guess it's just two fifties. But it wipes out these two weeks of tournaments, regardless of how many points there are. And I, I forget exactly what the rules are, but it, it, every team play it brings a couple singles players and a, and a doubles team, and they play mini ties against each other. There's, I think, there would be three different locations with round robins of maybe it's six countries. I forget. I, I've really researched all this stuff and then it blends together in, with, the, with the New Davis Cup in my head. But you have Round Robins in three locations and then either the final eight or final four teams go have single elimination in one location uh, to, to finish it off. And there's been talk that maybe there's still room for compromise between the ATP and the ITF, so maybe there won't end up being these two different international competitions within six weeks or so of each other, with the new Davis Cup kicking off this November. But it seems reasonably likely that we will see that, and you know, it could well be attention-grabbing if the top players show up. One of the downsides, though, is it would spell the end of the Hopman Cup, which, as I've mentioned, is going on right now with Serena Williams and Roger Federer, among many other top players. And Carl, I'm guessing that's not something that, that you're a big fan of, being a, a, a fan of Unusual formats and Hopman Cup and mixed doubles and so on.
1: Yeah, I think it's sad. I, I, I think there was probably room for both of them. Maybe something like Hopman Cup could exist elsewhere in the calendar, but there was specific tradition with Hopman himself and and you know the the ties to Australia. Um, but I'm I'm not against tennis trying lots of different things I know it it's fun to make fun of and I've done it and it's also disorienting and probably disorienting for players as well but there's no specific reason why the tennis calendar has to be the way it is fairly uh, similar from week to week and that's not that's not something that has been written in the history books for for centuries, that 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 is the structure of tennis. And I I would not be surprised if there is a way to, to get all the best tennis players in the world out there in front of more people, entertaining people more, happier themselves, and making more money than what we have today. And the only way to figure out what that better version is, is to try lots of things.
0: Yeah, and partly by virtue of doing this podcast with you for... The last year and a half, off and on, is I have come around more to that position, and i i I think I used to be very conservative about keep about wanting to keep the traditional tournament formats from week to week and 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 just defaulting to making fun of all these new ideas but uh I do agree that there's some value in experimentation. What I wonder about that dawned on me thinking about the the demise potential demise of the Hotman Cup is. We are talking about a lot of potential new formats these days with the New Davis Cup and then ATP Cup and other things that the PK group have suggested. But all these things right now are happening on the men's side. And a lot of them are geared towards creating new ways to have the same top players face off against each other. And in this specific case, we're gaining a new format to... You know, if the promoters promoters are are to be made happy, a, a new way to see Federer versus Nadal or Djokovic versus Murray, and what we lose is one of the few remaining bastions of mixed doubles. And maybe maybe I'm overstating the potential value of mixed doubles, but Hopman Cup is traditionally one of the places where you can really see its potential. I mean, just the fact that there's there's so much press right now against uh, about Federer and Serena. Uh, being on opposite sides in the net for the first time Um, it just seems like this this round of experimentation is has some very narrow boundaries like it, it it's only men it's it's a fairly small range of potential competitions and in this case it's excluding something that might be more valuable I mean, it, we haven't seen much mixed doubles in the last several generations of tennis. It's been relegated to the slams and the Olympics and Hotman Cup. But if you go back further, I think mixed doubles are a lot more common. Uh, a lot of tournaments in the amateur era had it. It's It's been long been a big part of world team tennis and world team tennis used to have a much longer, more ambitious schedule throughout the U.S. summer. So maybe, it, it, maybe it's time has passed. I don't know but it it seems like at one point mixed doubles was a big part of what attracted people to tennis, and we seem to be killing it off. And it seems like a,
1: a, we could be losing a lot there. Yeah, I mean, you won't find a bigger fan of mixed doubles. Well, you probably can, but <laughs> I haven't met a bigger fan of mixed doubles than me. So you haven't and... met Justin Gimelstob. <laughs> you know, I did meet him a long time ago. We didn't talk about mixed doubles. I... I would just love to know what the backstory is here, because there are so many symptoms of a schism between the WTA and ATP on lots of fronts, uh, including their streaming service. But, you know, the, the Labor Cup could very easily have been a, a competition featuring women and men and was not. And so many, so many of the ideas, ITF is a body that brings together men and women, but uh, the, the new ideas out of ITF are not you know, embracing that in any way, um, and are, are doing different things with with the men's tournament, the women's tournament, at a different pace. It, it just it just feels like there's an increasing split between men and women. And I wouldn't be surprised if some tournaments that are combined now do not no are no longer combined. And I don't know what's driving it and who's driving it and is it economics? Is it numbers? Is it personalities? Is there sexism? From the ATP side? Is there just a stronger drive for independence from the WTA side? But I, I, I've been surprised to see that because while I did just advocate experimentation and, and not going with, with the old just because it's traditional, it does feel like a lot of the appeal of tennis and what makes it special and what makes it interesting to friends of mine who are not hardcore fans and are not listeners of this show, for instance is the combined nature of it, and it's, it's something that people love about the Olympics, and the Olympics is enormously successful. So I, I would just love to know what what's, is driving the decisions, and is there some, really some central break that's happening, which is my speculation, or is it just a few coincidental things that, will, that the next coincidences will bring men and women closer together in tennis?
0: Yeah, I I hope that's the case. I I'm glad you brought that up because I I, w- I was hoping we'd talk about that eventually. That you're right. There's there does seem to be this schism. Things are drifting apart. And it's tennis is really unique. Like there there's a lot of sports where there's a prominent men's sport and a prominent women's sport, but there's very few sports where they've traditionally been mostly one unit or I mean, some significant amount of their events have been together. And yeah, we, we, the Grand Slams have always been joint events. Like there's there's a lot a lot of notable tournaments that have traditionally been joint events, starting with, with Indian Wells and, and Cincinnati and uh, other tournaments around the world. And I think the Brisbane tournament, or the either Brisbane or Sydney, goes back a long, long time, and it's traditionally been a, a, a joint tournament as well. So yeah, there's so much tradition there. I think you're right that a lot of fans maybe the more casual fans love tennis because of the, of the joint nature of it. Uh, certainly the having sort of like these two parallel uh, parallel events going on mean that when, when one side has a bit of a lull in the star power or playing quality, the other one can pick it up. Um, I mean, maybe that's what's going to happen now when the big four retire and the world all bows down collectively to Arena Sabalenka. Uh, but yeah, there's no opportunity for that to happen if it becomes like the tennis version of the NBA and WNBA and they, they maybe give lip service to working together and they're playing the same sport, but they, they become more and more separate. Um, So I hope that doesn't happen. And it seems like mixed doubles is a good way, a, a very fan friendly way to, to stop that from happening. And like you say, labor cup could easily have been mixed. Um, I mean the, the ITF is running both Davis Cup and Fed Cup, and for some reason, fixing, or fixing is the wrong word, changing one on a different schedule than the other, when it seemed like they could have done both at the same time. Uh, seems like there's a lot of missed opportunities to do that, but, but who knows. Um, speaking of the ITF, one of the big changes for the 2019 season is the ITF transition tour the ITF rankings this whole different system that we're using now to to determine who enters to tournaments and a whole variety of things that to most fans I'm guessing go completely completely under the radar are completely unimportant I mean Carl I'm guessing you haven't really dug
1: into the nitty-gritty of all of this yet no you wrote some very help, helpful show notes which I dug into I, I a while ago wrote about the difficulty of players making money uh, on the men's and the women's side and the ITF sort of diagnosis of the problem. And this is, years later, the part of the solution that they're proposing. And it's not obvious that this is the solution that that anyone would have chosen. So I'm pretty interested in, in how this is supposed to make sure that there's more of a career pathway open to a very promising young player in tennis to be able to get to a point where they start making a living sooner and more of them make a living so they can stay with the sport.
0: Yeah. um, Now, as, as Carl mentioned, I I made a lot of notes about this partly because I don't totally understand it myself. Like I don't have a good intuition yet about how it's going to work in terms of how it's going to affect certain types of players. But let me, let let me give everyone a, a, A quick rundown on what's going on um so first off the 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 itf introduced their own rating system which is is based on certain itf tournaments um basically the futures and equivalent itfs on the women's side and then the atp and wta rankings are limited to only higher level tournaments so Through 2018, if you got to the quarterfinals of a futures like a 10k event in the middle of nowhere, you'd get some small number of ATP points and you'd end up end the week being like number 1478 on the ATP computer. Now you get a similar proportional number of points, but they go towards your ITF ranking, not to your ATP ranking. So you don't have an ATP ranking with a performance like that. You have an ITF ranking and The end result is there are fewer players now, starting this week, with ATP and WTA rankings. I know on the ATP side, it's, I think, 679 players instead of over 2,000 before. But on the flip side, there are now about 3,700 players with ITF rankings on the men's side. And the overall number has increased because you can get a point by reaching the final qualifying round of a Futures, which means overall there are more players in the system. There's a bunch of other changes, but the, the most important ones I think are are related to tournament entry, that to get into a challenger, um, it's mostly the same as it's always been, Best best ATP rankings get in, but then some places are reserved for the players with the best ITF rankings, so someone who wins a bunch of futures has an opportunity to try their hand at the next level. It's similar on the women's side, but it's more complicated because um, there are different rules for the different levels of ITFs. So there's nothing really directly equivalent to a challenger on the women's side, so it's a bit tougher to talk about. But the overall money doesn't change very much. Um, there's a bit more money in the system, I think, now. there, there There's no more 10k tournaments, so now they're, they're 50% more prize money at the 15k level. I'm sure the end result is that there are not quite as many tournaments, but there's a clearer path for top juniors to play the lowest level ITF events, which that might be a good thing. I don't know. Uh, but one one main takeaway here is that it all gets a lot more complicated. A lot of players, the players who are doing well in futures but struggling in challengers, they're going to have two separate rankings, which they might use for entry in different weeks. Uh, it's It's complicated, and I think players are going to have have a bit of a hard time for at least a year or two figuring out exactly how to maximize their chances of of making a living, of, of playing the right tournament every week under this new system. Uh, but to me, the main takeaway is that we have a more complicated tournament entry system, but the same amount of money and the same players. So I'm not, as you started out by saying, Carl, that's, that's the most important thing here is that it probably doesn't change very much. It might make certain players a bit richer and certain players a bit poorer, but the players we're talking about are already not making a living from tennis unless they're just barely doing so. Um, the players who most fans care about, who are racing up to the top 50 or top 20 and beyond, like it doesn't really matter how the ranking system works. They're going to win futures. They're going to get past several rounds in challengers, they're going to get to the top 100. They're going to get wild cards pretty quickly, uh, regardless of how things work for the people who used to be like 250 or 300 in the world, whose lives just got more complicated.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, their lives were complicated before, but there it was a system they knew, it was a system that that existed. Um, and, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it, it's... <laughs> it's almost like the universal basic basic income approach to tennis the the best way to make tennis easier on the players who are trying to r- rise through the ranks is to have more money but most of the most of the money that there is in tennis comes through the slams and the slams plow that money into their own national sport not into tennis at large so it's just hard to to find lots of extra money. So yeah, you can shuffle things around a bit and maybe improve certain parts of the process. But there just isn't the, the the numbers that matter are the number of players trying to make it and the amount of money available to, to the majority of them who, who don't make it quickly. And those numbers don't match up very well.
0: Yeah. One thing that struck me through the last year of all this talk about the changes to the Davis cup is there are people who think there's a lot of money to be made in tennis? Um, I mean, there are always people willing to to bid on the rights to uh, like an ATP 500 that that loses its sponsors at home. Or, but we have this investment group that's putting a billion dollars towards revamping the Davis Cup and doing all this other stuff. And. I mean, that's over a long period of time and a whole bunch of different events and so on. So maybe it's not as as much money as it sounds like when we get to use the B word. But but clearly there's there's a lot of money to be made in tennis, even if you just look at the slams. And you end up with this sport where that money gets divided between a maximum of about 250 players on both sides of the, on both genders. And everyone else is just you know, fighting over the scraps. I mean, you mentioned, Carl, you've written about this. Are there proposals out there? Do you have ideas of of how to fix that and make it more equitable, like something like golf, where I think that more than 500 players are able to make a decent living out of the sport?
1: Well, the simplest thing is the spread of prize money. Like, it's so exponential between between tournaments and then between rounds in tournaments. And that makes for really exciting checks handed out to the winner. But that money is often going to someone who makes far more anyway from endorsement deals and other things severed from prize money, appearance fees included. So making the, the pay structure more even is the simplest solution. The the risk is, you know, do you, do you drive away on the margins some top talent who don't see the same potential for riches and fame? Uh, do you disincentivize some top players from having longer careers, from playing the biggest tournaments? I am not too worried about that. I think there will still be so much prestige and future-earning opportunity from winning Wimbledon that... Wimbledon doesn't have to also make the winner's check, you know, 164 times the singles, the first round losers, whatever the discrepancy is, it's somewhere in that range. Um, but I I think it would be a publicity hit for the sport to say, like, we've reduced the, the prize money for the champion. So it's, it's not going to be an easy sell.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you think... Do you think the way to do that would be, like, like let's just take the U.S. as an example, because we we know the USTA makes a ton of money. They plow a lot of that back into the their own players and their own tournaments and so on. I know they sponsor a lot of the challengers and futures around the U.S. Would it be a meaningful first step if the U.S. Open were just to say, we're going to freeze prize money for five years. Y'all are doing great. You can all still make a lot of money here. And instead, our goal is to... Double the prize money at every professional event in the U.S. Instead, I mean, do you think that would make a meaningful effect?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, maybe way disproportionately for U.S. players, which is what the USTA would want to do. But yeah, I think I think the numbers. I mean, I think maybe you don't double Cincy and, but you mean like USTA? Events. I mean challengers um, and futures. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think those numbers probably roughly work out. I don't know i'd I'd have to look at what the typical increase has been but uh, i think that would have a really big impact
0: well i hope that if if someone decides to do this i mean I, i don't think this is what will happen but if someone did decide to do something like that i hope it would be as transparent as that and be as open to everyone because one of my main complaints about the the big federations who who own the the franchises of the grand slams is they often use their money specifically for their own players which is totally understandable if you're running the french tennis federation then yeah all your stakeholders are going to be in favor of improving the quality of french tennis but that means you end up with things like national federations who double their own players prize money i think the the uk does some variation of that and I mean I guess that's better than just handing out checks like the USGA used to do for Donald Young but it also means that like all they're doing is making their own little fiefdom of tennis more competitive or attracting players from their own country again I understand what that's what the stakeholders would want but if I were a stakeholder which unfortunately I am not one who cares about the overall quality of tennis improving, then I love the idea of increasing the prize money, just even if it's just a U.S. tournament, that everyone in the world can come compete at. I mean, it's, it's more expensive for someone to come from Moldova and compete in the U.S. all year long than it is for someone who grew up in Georgia. But at least then... The U.S. Georgia. The, yeah, the U.S. Georgia. Good Good catch um at least then the promising kid from Moldova could compete for for that money and would have a better chance of making a living and i mean maybe dreaming big it would influence other federations to to do the same but like i say i'm i'm not counting on any of this happening
1: yeah i mean it's a, it's the fundamental historical oddity at the center of the structure of tennis and tennis money that the prestige, the value, the fame, the the fan attention, all of it goes to these four events that each have different masters that get all of that value from the sport that is really being generated all year at events all around the world, but is then being sort of cashed out at those events and going to the organizers of those events and to the tennis federations of the four countries that host those events. It's not, it's not the way anyone would set up a sport ever let alone today
0: yeah Um, yeah and 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 part of it stems from tennis being such a big sport that's not a team sport like many and many team sports have arrived at the same solution of essentially doing what world team tennis does is operating as one unit I mean all the all the major North American team sports like yes the franchises are separate and they compete with each other but They've all agreed to some to some degree to, to work together for the for the good of the sport, whether that's revenue sharing or salary caps or uh, whatever. Uh, tennis doesn't have anything like that. I mean, and the only way it will is when some tournament decides to do something for the betterment of the sport, like increasing prize money for qualifiers and things like that. But I don't think that's a, a very comprehensive way forward to just rely on each tournament doing something innovative and hoping others will follow along. Um, Then you'd end up with the financial version of having four different match formats at the grand slams this year (laughs) with super tie breaks and 12, 12 sets. And Carl, you didn't really think I would get through an entire episode without ranting about that. Did you,
1: you know, that is another joke that's easy to make and not that you didn't make it well and that I have made myself and, and it's funny, but I was actually thinking that as a counterexample to your argument, like, yeah, right, 2019 is going to be funny, and people are going to laugh about it, and maybe 2020 will be too, but eventually the sport tends to converge when someone does make a radical change. Uh, Tiebreakers themselves were radical, and not everyone embraced them, and they still haven't been fully embraced, as we can see from, oh, what do we do in the fifth set? We want to settle a close fifth set, but but it, it really just took, you know, someone trying out the format for other people to say, "Oh, that makes sense. We should do that." Uh, it's messy, but it but it gets there. So maybe maybe it would take just the U.S. Open or Wimbledon doing something innovative to spread the money around a little more equitably to to get others to follow, in their own slightly different way. Well, yeah, and I I think there's more potential
0: on the financial side than there is on the court rules side. I mean, it is kind of silly that we have four different ways now of settling long fifth sets. But if the U.S. Open decided to put their money towards you know, doubling the prize money in challengers and the French Open decided to use their money to you know, slightly increasing futures prize money across the European Union, or I, I don't know what the variations would be, but as long as they're all aiming towards roughly the same goal, then
1: that would be an improvement. But, yeah, and right. they would also, they're sort of competing with each other in that case. Eventually you would probably settle somewhere that's similar. Like if the challengers in the U.S. suddenly were worth a lot more money and started getting more European players, then maybe the FFT would think, oh, we should probably also do that. Yeah, I would hope that would be a result
0: and you just end up with hopefully not with all the French players leaving France all year long. I don't think that would go over very well at home. And then then maybe the stakeholders with the FFT would would have different priorities. That might be too much to hope for. Um, we have a few other things on our show notes. I'm not sure there are things we really have time to talk about. Um, anything else, Carl? Well, Jeff, you did yeah. so
1: much amazing work in the offseason. I do hope we get to talk about some of your findings in in some future episode, if not now. Yeah, we'll put that on the list for
0: future episodes. I'm not sure what you're talking about, about any amazing work I did in the off-season. I didn't do very much work in the off-season. I appreciate your vote of confidence, though. (laughs) Well, maybe it was just stuff you emailed me that you haven't published yet. (laughs) Yeah, I do think that's mostly what it is. Uh, as a reward for the three or four listeners who've made it to the end of this episode, I'll give you the, the teaser that there is a new version of Tennis Abstract coming your way soon with a lot more data available than what's there now. I'm looking forward to it at least as much as everyone else is because I would, I've i always been my own ideal user with Carl a close second because um, I, I want to have access to all this stuff at my fingertips and and getting the right tennis data at the right moment is it has always been a challenge so today was spent uh, wrestling the new itf transition tour rankings into into a condition that i can put them in a database which is not the most exciting thing to do but if you if you want to do any research with it or or even just have it at your fingertips to to check players rankings on multiple systems at the same time we've got to do it and the ITF isn't very good at archiving their own data. So I guess it it falls to me and a few other people out there who are doing this kind of work. So yeah, hopefully we'll have some of that to talk about in in upcoming weeks. And a week from now, we'll have a lot more results from the new season. It's pretty exciting after six to eight weeks of no tennis to suddenly know that we'll have five new champions at the end of this week and, and a better idea of what to expect in Australia. I'm curious to see how few games Arena Sabalenka loses in route to winning Shenzhen this week. Um, Carl, I know you've got a, a a hot tennis date waiting for you at the end of this recording. <laughs> um, but anything that's, else you want? That's
1: what, how all tennis podcasts should end. <laughs> yeah, tennis. with a
0: with a hot tennis date. Um, anything else you want to add before we wrap it up for this week?
1: Uh, no just just excited for more more tennis. How about you
0: yeah definitely um i've been I've been watching older matches all off season and adding those to the match charting project database and that is super fun, but it also makes it even more exciting when there's there's new results rolling in every day uh to start analyzing and arguing about so yeah, I hope you're all excited about that too. Carl and I will presumably be back next week. And maybe we'll, we'll keep doing that for much of this season. Um, thanks, Carl, for joining me, as always. Thanks, Jeff. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This was episode 42 of the Tennis Abstract podcast with Jeff Sackman and Carl Bialik. And it sounds like we'll see you next week.